Burning Bucks. Burning Bucks. Hello, and welcome to episode 12 of Burning Books, a podcast dedicated to discussing, celebrating, exploring, etc. Great books, very good books, books in which there's something to appreciate or admire, as well as books that are the opposite of all those things. Today, we're going to be talking about Sarah Thornton's informative, entertaining, nonfiction look at the stages and backstages, glossiness and grubbiness, philistinism and greed, business Marketing and Exchange of Art in Seven Days in the Art World, published in 2008. Thornton's Seven Days is a condensation of months of research, travel, observations, and interviews on what Thornton calls the art world, which she is quick to define as distinct from the art market. The market refers to the people who buy and sell works, that is, dealers, collectors, auction houses, but many art world players, the critics, curators, and artists themselves, are not directly involved in this commercial activity on a regular basis. If the art world shared one principle, it would probably be that nothing is more important than the art itself. Some people really believe this, others know it's de rigueur to say so. Having said that, though, there's no doubt the market plays a large, even determining, role in the art world. So it's no surprise that when Thornton looks at why the art world, as a vocation and a subject, has become so popular of late, the line of thought, meandering as it might be, ends up in the swirly letter with the bars through it. Another reason why art has become popular is that it is so expensive. High prices command media headlines, and they have in turn polarized the notion of art as a luxury good and status symbol. During the past 10 years, the most affluent slice of the global population has become even wealthier, and we've seen the rise of the billionaire. In the words of Amy Cavalazzo of Christie's, After you have a fourth home and a G5 jet, what else is there? Art is extremely enriching. Why shouldn't people want to be exposed to ideas? Certainly the number of people who don't just collect but stockpile art has grown from the hundreds to the thousands. In 2007, Christie sold 793 artworks for over $1 million each. In a digital world of clonable cultural goods, unique art objects are compared to real estate. They are positioned as solid assets that won't melt into air. Of course, there are other theories about art's newfound predominance. One of them is the idea that, as Thornton puts it, institutions of contemporary art, including their products, the works of art themselves, are a new form of religion for the atheists who inhabit and create them. Now, if part of you wants to puke when you hear this, I'm right there with you. But as they say on Twitter, retweets do not equal endorsements, by which I mean just because Thornton quotes these gas bags doesn't mean she agrees. Nor, on the other hand, does it mean she disagrees. This book is not a polemic. At its best, it's more like a panopticon, taking in all aspects of the asylum from a point of view that's both detached and central. When Thornton's on, her book maintains the balance that we tend to call objectivity, but it does sometimes slip. After all, Thornton herself is a fully paid-up member of the world she describes. So, as for those seven days we spend in the art world, they are the auction, the crit, meaning an academic critique of student work, the fair, the prize, the magazine, the studio visit, and the biennale. 
The book begins with the chapter I thought was strongest, or in any case, the one I most enjoyed, The Auction. The auction in question takes place on a November evening at Christie's in Midtown Manhattan, and the chapter begins with a visit to the often imitated, never superseded, Christopher Burge, Christie's chief auctioneer, who is doing a sound check before the main event. Burge leans on the dark wood rostrum, calling out prices into the void in a relaxed English accent. One million one, one million two, one million three. It is with Amy's bidder on the phone. It is not with you, sir, nor with you, madame. He smiles. One million four hundred thousand dollars to the lady at the back. One million five. Thank you, sir. He looks to the imaginary bank of telephones that will be manned by Christie's staff in two hours' time, wondering whether to expect another bid. He waits patiently, nods to affirm that the phone bidder will go no higher, and turns his attention back to the room to get a final psychological reading of his two other fantasy buyers. All done? He inquires in an affectionate tone. I am selling. $1,500,000 to the gentleman on the aisle, and he wraps his gavel with such short, sharp violence that it makes me jump. Burge, it turns out, keeps a playbook for the auction, a script he has written that contains his predictions of how the sale will play out. The playbook also includes a seating chart for the evening, demarcating the typically aggressive bidders from the known bottom feeders. It also details what Burge can expect from various other characters who will be in the house, as well as bidders on the phone. The auction in question is selling contemporary art. Thornton's book is squarely focused on contemporary art, and this particular auction occurs twice a year in New York, three times in London. Christie's, along with Sotheby's, controls 98% of the global art auction market, and contemporary art sales are where a lot of the outrageous headlines you might have seen are made. The so-called sale of Damien Hirst's 50 million pound diamond-encrusted skull being one recent example. All types of people arrive at the auction, and Thornton ably navigates the reader through this ecosystem. There are the rich collectors like David Tiger, that's T-E-I-G-E-R, although the point is made, who is quoted while talking to a well-dressed older woman. What period do you collect, she asks. This morning, he responds. You like art by young artists, she asks earnestly. I don't necessarily like it, but I buy it. There are agents for the rich, like Jean Segalo. Give me a bid but be prepared for me to exceed it. There are in-house experts, like Christie's Amy Capilazzo. People have a litmus test with color. Brown paintings don't sell as well as blue or red paintings. A male nude doesn't usually go over as well as a buxom female. Collectors get confused and concerned about things that plug in. There are disgruntled dealers, like this one from London, who doesn't give his or her name. Between you and me, everyone is so full of shit. The people are running after each other. The chat is full of subterfuge and sleazy art world stories. It's like a tableau vivant of pretentious greed. You walk in, and everyone's so happy, and how are you, when all they want to do is screw you. There are snide observers, like the journalist Josh Bear. People like to talk about themselves and to show that they know what they know. I'm fighting that urge right now. I have to fight the impulse to try to impress you. There are hypersensitive sellers, like Juliet. It was horrible. I wanted to hyperventilate and die. I felt like I was being undressed. And that's just a handful of the many. Market speculators, market manipulators, agents for families, lawyers, people who purport to have insider knowledge, or purport to have insider insider knowledge. Great quantities of smoke abound, and more mirrors are there to multiply the effects. We learn in this chapter the names of hot artists, and cold ones, 
the dollar value difference between male and female artists, the role played by Park Avenue elevator sizes in determining what gets bought at auction, and at the center of it all, digging out bids as though the bidders themselves were barely in control of their wallets, is the mellifluous voice of Christopher Burge. As Thornton guides us through the scene, we see how millions of dollars are exchanged in a matter of seconds, tens of millions, in less than a few minutes. Even though the chapter moves moment by moment through the proceedings of the auction, it still passes in a flash. Thornton concludes this way. As I walk through the revolving doors into the cold New York air, the celebratory expression, making a killing, and Burge's gladiatorial metaphor of the Coliseum waiting for thumbs come to mind. Even if the people here tonight were initially lured into the auction room by a love of art, they find themselves participating in a spectacle where the dollar value of the work has virtually slaughtered its other meanings. For sheer excitement, there is nothing in the remainder of Seven Days in the Art World that matches the chapter on the auction, but that doesn't mean there's not a fair bit more to the story. Before we go on, though, I wanted to add one more thing. The auction chapter, in many ways, sets the tone of our journey through the art world. It's a place filled with plenty of players, the motivations are described by various words, but generally coalesce around the same ends, and the only question is how people address the fact that the market is central to the pursuit. Is it ignored? Deferred? Renamed? Justified? Co-opted? The following chapter, on the academic crit, brings the reader to what would seem to be the antithesis of the auction. The crit Thornton visits is one of the great examples of its kind, great within the art community, that is. It's at CalArts, one of the premier art schools in the States, and it's for a studio run by an artist instructor, Michael Asher. The crit starts at the beginning of the day and lasts well into the night. Three students have been chosen to present their work, and as they do, their classmates lounge around, sometimes on chairs, sometimes on the floor, sometimes paying attention, sometimes not, sometimes awake, sometimes not. There's some talk, and some of it is not complete bullshit. Most of it, though, sounds like the kind of verbiage one hears in any department of a university, strings of words that seem to strive for meaning while rarely achieving it. Thornton has been granted access to the crit on the condition she doesn't disrupt it by asking questions. So when she has to scratch her journalistic itch, she leaves the room and wanders around campus, asking purposely naive-seeming questions of students and staff, such as, what makes an artist? The answers she gets are telling, and range from, that's not fair, and you can't ask that, to the almost inevitable, for me, an artist is someone who makes art, and art is really play, but play in the most serious sense the latter of which I don't even want to start with. Except maybe to say, paradox for the sake of paradox is obnoxious and cowardly. Okay? Great. Now, back to the story. While the reader gets plenty of pseudo-thought from Thornton's investigations, he or she is also treated to insights into the trouble of teaching art, submitting the magic of creativity to the rigors of rational discussion, as well as a few ideas on what role the art market does, or should play, in school, even at a self-regarding leftist, meaning anti-commercial, academy like CalArts. The consensus on that point seems to be, pretend whatever you want, the market's there. At best, we can only hope to defer its pressures for as long as possible. After the walkabout, Thornton comes back to the class to observe her tribe, and as the crit goes on, or drones on, the reader comes to ask, is this how Caravaggio did it? And if not, is this how Caravaggio would have preferred to have done it? Asher looks at his watch. It's 7.01 p.m., I've sunk into post-studio's parallel universe of daydreams. The crit is about being here and letting your mind flow. Twenty students remain from an earlier high of 28. People move slowly so as not to be disruptive. 
The only time people walk out quickly is when, phone vibrating, they leave the room to take a call. When they return, they tiptoe through the debris, the scattered chairs, the sprawled legs, the sleeping dogs. On the one hand, a number of successful artists, yes, I just used that term, started as groups and crits. The young British artists are one example. And to look at it from yet another point of view, this all-day marathon of concentration is, as Thornton observes, a form of art on its own, an entire day immersed in the consideration and reconsideration of our world, which is certainly within the standard definition of art's purpose. If only the exercise were a little more self-conscious, by which I mean self-conscious of its limits. Self-consciousness, however, does not seem to be an essential vitamin or nutrient in the art world. In fact, it might almost be seen as a poison. The following chapters, the fair, the magazine, the studio visit, the biennale, all demonstrate in various ways how suspension of disbelief, as well as belief, in fact, a general suspension of all kinds, is critical to the workings of this world. The management of perception may be key in all this, but self-perception is not. Early on in the book, Thornton says that people she meets absolutely believe the things they say in the moment they say them, and it seems true. But moments in the art world are especially fleeting, and memory nearly non-existent. So what you said might be true in that moment, but that moment, being in the past, may as well have taken place in the 16th century for all these people care. They're not looking back. And I guess that's what happens when the obsession is the contemporary. It keeps moving, and you need to move and change with it. Personal integrity be damned. The focus on current art has been such that no one waits for history to make decisions about what is great, good, or simply competent. In an ideal career narrative that starts with graduation from a respected art school and culminates with a solo retrospective in a major museum, prizes are important plot points, clarifying an artist's cultural worth, providing prestige, and pointing to the potential for long-lasting greatness. On this point, one magazine editor says, I have no idea why art sells or why people care. But that's not close to the truth. Art moves because investors find potential in it, or, more specifically, because they believe others will find potential in it. I think it was John Maynard Keynes who made an analogy between market functions and a newspaper competition that he once saw. In the competition, there was a page full of photographs of women, and the reader was meant to identify the prettiest among them. The aim of the newspaper competition, Keynes pointed out, was not actually to identify the girl you thought was prettiest, or the girl who was objectively prettiest, but the girl you thought others would think was prettiest. And everyone entering the competition was thinking the same way, which meant A, that no one is really thinking for him or herself, and B, the prettiest girl will almost certainly not get chosen, because we are thinking consensus, not exception. In the art world, this means you have collectors, like the aforementioned David Tiger, who don't buy what they like, but what they think others will like. And what's good, and possibly even great, comes a distant second to what people think other people think is good or great. Anyone who has visited the Villa Borghese, filled with so many Bernini sculptures, has the sinking feeling it wasn't always this way. But our culture, any culture, gets the art it deserves. We deserve the shit they put on display the multi-million dollar, exquisitely crafted balloon animals. As Peter Shaldahl once wrote about Jeff Koons, It looks and is incredibly costly, and as sweet as dime store perfume. It apostrophizes our present era of plutocratic democracy, sinking scads of money in a gesture of solidarity with lower class taste. All this reminds me that Marcel Duchamp, perhaps the first artist to directly question what exactly it is that we value in art, often went by the name Marchand du Sel, Merchant of Salt. 
and it probably did not escape him. Indeed, it might have been his intention to point out that salt is the origin of the word salary. Thornton does not view the art world she covers the same way I do. This is particularly telling in her visit to the artist's studio, the artist in question being the Japanese manufacturist, my term, Takashi Murakami, who creates manga figures and massive cartoon-looking Buddhas, and is famous for putting a Louis Vuitton boutique, which sold products that use Murakami's designs, in the middle of his San Francisco Museum of Contemporary Art retrospective. Murakami's dealers, and the curator who is organizing his show, repeatedly compare Murakami's work to Warhol's, mostly on the basis of their similar factory-scale production, except that Murakami has, quote, perfected the form, which is a sad word to use in the circumstances, or in any circumstances not baseball-related. From this mess, Thornton eventually saves the reader by giving us Murakami's own view of his work, which is that cartoon culture was one way the Japanese contended with the experience and consequences of nuclear war. Japanese cartoons, Murakami notes, are full of radiated plants, monsters, and superheroes, and what he has done is elevated this to art. That makes sense. As for the Vuitton boutique, though, that's just what it is. Ambivalence, distaste, disagreement, these are all parts of the experience of reading Seven Days in the Art World. And except for the occasional lapses in editorial quality, none is. Please don't tell me about people who believe in art and what is a long tennis court. The book is smoothly written. The characters can get your back up, but that's what good characters do. Every work needs characters of dubious qualities, and here there are plenty who inhabit the darker shades of gray. In the end, the most important measure of a book is in its engagement of the reader, and between curiosity and outrage, I was almost always fully into this book. In fact, I could even have used an eighth day, one spent at the museum. I'm curious to know what goes into choosing an artist's work for a retrospective, as well as what pieces make it and what pieces don't. Another time, hopefully. I'm going to end this review with two excerpts, one from the auction, the other from the Biennale. The first comes from the former, and is in the voice of Thornton herself. Art used to embody something meaningful enough to be relevant beyond the time in which it was made. But collectors today are attracted to art that holds up a mirror to our times, and are too impatient to hang on to the work long enough to see if it contains any timeless rewards. The second is from Francesco Vezzoli an Italian artist whose work, a mock presidential debate between Sharon Stone and the French philosopher Henri Bernard Lévy, was displayed on TVs at the Venice Biennale. The thin boundary between art and entertainment is slowly vanishing. The two fields are probably proceeding more and more with the same strategies. Maybe artists are greedy for more attention or more funding for our projects. Perhaps if I fail as an artist, I'll end up as a second-rate media mogul. For all the effort that Thornton puts into trying to distinguish the art market from the art world, the latter, the world, looks very much, by the end of the book, like a product wholly formed by the market. On this point, I'm going to add one final quote, not from this book, but very much about its subject. It's from Theaster Gates, a Chicago artist recently profiled in The New Yorker. He was asked about the gallery work he sells, which he uses to fund his numerous and impressive public projects. His answer is telling. I'm not really an artist. I'm something else, said Gates. I'm probably first a hustler. When I asked him later to expand on this, he said he was alluding to the art world as a whole. I'm actually implicating everyone, he said. I'm the hustler who's willing to admit this is all a fucking hustle. 
Like, you think that Basel, Miami isn't a fucking hustle? For 125 square feet, we've got to pay $75,000. That's a fucking hustle. Feaster Gates, voila. Thank you very much for listening. Next up on Burning Books is a review of Satan in Gorai, the first novel by the Nobel laureate Isaac Bashevis Singer. False messiahs and their messengers, get ready. In the meantime, I enjoy hearing from you, so please send me notes, nasty and nice, either via Twitter, at burningbookspod, or email. The address is burningbookspod at gmail.com. My thanks to Hakan Osgan for the music. There are several ways to thank someone. So, let's start with the easiest. Teşekkürler. And as always, go Jays. Taking you to places you haven't even dreamed about. This is Radio Litopia. A world in your ear.